0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Two American men were riding on a train in Britain, and they were sitting in one of those six-passenger compartments that you'll find in English trains. Across from them was a very distinguished-looking gentleman, and they were quietly discussing him. And in a low tone, one of them said, I bet you he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the other fellow said, I don't think so. I'll take you up on that bet. So the first man approached the gentleman and said, Sir, my friend and I are having a little disagreement. I wonder if you could help us out. Are you the Archbishop of Canterbury? And the man immediately replied, Mind your own blankety-blank business. What the blankety-blank difference does it make to you? Well, when he had gathered his composure, the first American turned to the other and said, the bet's off. There's no way of finding out. Well, I'm sure that the second American wouldn't agree with that conclusion, and neither would the Apostle Paul, because a person's walk and talk should match his identity, and that's the premise of the book of Ephesians. Having described our high calling in Jesus Christ in the first three chapters, Paul begins chapter 4 by begging us to walk worthy of our calling. Having told us who we are, he now is going to tell us to be who we are. Paul says, let your walk match your identity. Now, in the book of Esther in the Old Testament, the Persian king there promoted one of his servants named Haman to an elevated position in the government. And he gave orders to his servants that every time Haman walked by, they were to all bow down and pay homage to him. One of his servants refused to do that, a servant by the name of Mordecai. Every time Haman walked by, everybody bowed down but Mordecai. And when people asked him why he didn't bow down, he gave one simple answer. He said, I am a Jew. And that's the only answer Mordecai needed to give because he lived by the principle Be who you are. And that's the principle Paul is addressing here in the book of Ephesians. He's saying that you are a Christian. You have been brought out of death into life. You have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. You are made part of God's church, God's kingdom, God's family, God's temple. In fact, you are God's masterpiece. So now, beginning in chapter 4, he says, Be who you are. Walk worthy of your calling." And as we saw last week, he begins to describe our worldly walk in verse 2. And the first characteristic is humility. And it's really fitting that Paul would begin this discussion of our walk with humility because that's really the number one characteristic in God's economy. When Jesus wanted to give us a model to emulate beside himself, who did he select? Well, in Matthew chapter 18, he took a little child and he set him in the midst of the disciples And he said, whoever humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In God's kingdom, the ticket to greatness is humility. The way up is down. Jesus said it this way in Luke 18, 14, he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, that's not just a clever idea that God had to confuse us. That is a principle that he has always lived by and always will live by. Humility. Humility. The reason we don't understand things that way is because of sin. Sin has twisted it around. In fact, do you know what the first sin was? It was a sin of pride. It was when Satan decided to exalt himself. And we have his words in Isaiah 14. He said, I will make myself like the Most High. And then he came to Eve in the garden and what did he say to her? He said, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Pride again. And he continues to promote that agenda today, trying to produce that pride in our lives. We are born into this world in the kingdom of Satan, walking in pride. We have been called out of that kingdom into the kingdom of God. And as a result of that, Paul says we're to walk worthy. We are to walk in humility. Humility is really having a proper perspective of myself. And as we said last week, we get that perspective in the presence of the Lord. When I see him as He really is, then I see myself as I really am. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, and it's not thinking too lowly of yourself. Humility is actually not thinking of yourself at all. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing from pride, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's pretty radical. I get myself completely out of the picture so that I focus on the needs of other people. That's humility. Second characteristic in our walk is meekness. I've heard people desire humility. I've heard them ask for patience. I've heard them say, I want more love. I don't think I've ever heard a person say, I would like to be more meek. Probably because we don't really appreciate meekness. But Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue after meekness. And in Colossians 3.12, he says, put on a heart of meekness. Meekness is power under control. It's that inner quality of submission to God, and it expresses itself outwardly in a kind of soothing gentleness. It's the person who would rather suffer injury than inflict it. Meekness is really the opposite of self-assertiveness. It's the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe Moses in Numbers twelve three. It says, Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses was meek. Now, meekness is not a synonym of weakness because Moses was anything but weak. Just ask Pharaoh. Just ask the children of Israel who watched him break the tablets in in righteous anger in their presence. Meekness is not weakness, but Moses, more than anyone else in his day, was a man who was submissive to God. And that submissiveness expressed itself in a gentleness that would rather suffer affliction than inflict it. That's probably most evident in Exodus chapter 32, where Moses came and found the children of Israel had sinned against God by making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. And on that occasion, Moses went to prayer, and here's what he said to God. He said, God, if you can't forgive them, then blot my name out of your book. That's meekness. God, if you can't show forgiveness to them, then I don't want it either. It's expressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9-3 when he said, I wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I wish that I could be separated from Christ so that my Jewish kinsmen could be brought to Christ. That's meekness. It's what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, turn the other cheek. It's what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 6-7 when he said, if you've got an argument against your brother and naturally you would want to take him to court... Paul says, I want you to respond this way, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. I want you to rather be wronged. That's meekness. You see, humility expresses itself in the fact that I don't assert my merits. Meekness expresses itself in the fact that I don't assert my rights. Third characteristic is patience. The Greek word here is makrothumai. Makros means long. Thumos means anger. Together it means long anger. We say of a person he's short-tempered. This is the opposite of that. This is to be long-tempered. It's to have a long fuse. Patience is the ability to bear and endure the mistreatment of others without becoming resentful or bitter. It's the capacity for lasting tolerance in the face of injuries inflicted by others. It's the calm willingness to accept situations that are irritating or painful. It's the ability to be wronged and wronged and wronged and never retaliate. That's patience. Now, that's not really viewed as a, an attribute or a virtue to be admired in the world. I mean, we typically admire people like Charles Bronson the vigilante who gets revenge. And we root for Popeye when he says, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. We naturally think it's right to keep score and get even and pay people back. In fact, we normally measure a person's strength by their ability to retaliate. But the truth is that it takes far more strength to be patient than it does to retaliate. And God is calling us to be radically different, to walk in patience. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul says we're to be patient with all men. That includes your spouse, your children, your neighbors, slow drivers... Inexperienced checkers at the grocery store, loud, selfish, obnoxious people. We are to be patient with all men. And if you need a little motivation, just think about how God has been patient with you. Second Peter three nine says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In first Timothy one fifteen, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. And then in the next verse, he says that God saved him for one reason, and that was to demonstrate his perfect patience so he would be an example to other believers. And all of us who are believers, who are honest, would have to say that very same thing. We are living demonstrations of the perfect patience of God. And having experienced his patience, we are to walk in patience. Patience with circumstances, stuck zippers, flat tires, misplaced keys, untrained pets, accidents, deadlines. Patience with people, traffic jams, long lines, nosy neighbors, crying babies, phone calls, interruptions, mothers-in-law. And patience with God in relation to his promises. God told Abraham, I will make your seed like the sands of the seashore. Abraham was 99 years old. He had one son, Ishmael, and God said he doesn't count. Now, it would have been easy for Abraham to get just a little bit discouraged at that point. But the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6 and verse 15, And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Adniram Judson went as a missionary with his wife to Burma. He labored there for six years preaching the gospel without ever seeing one person come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Sunday after Sunday, they would get together and break bread, and he would turn to his wife and say, we are the church of Jesus Christ in Burma. And before that, first person was saved in Burma, a friend from Boston wrote him and asked, what are the prospects for the conversion of the heathen in Burma? And Judson wrote back and said, They are as bright as the promises of God. That's patience. And that's what we're to walk in. Fourth characteristic at the end of verse 2 is that we're to show forbearance to one another in love. Now, the word forbearance means to put up with, it means to put up with the ill behavior and failures and flaws of others. But Paul is not simply calling us to forbear, to put up with, because he adds to that the phrase, in love. It's possible to put up with people while despising them internally. So Paul says we're to put up with them, at the same time, we're to love them. See, that's the nature of love. 1 Peter Four eight says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is difficult sometimes because we're to love imperfect people. But love covers sins. Love is demonstrated in spite of the other person's faults and sins and failures. And that's why the, the word Paul uses here is the word agape. It's God's love. It's the love that Jesus displayed on the cross when He said, Father, forgive them. It's a love that has room for failures. You say, well, why should I have to put up with the faults of other people? Well, because other people are putting up with your faults. You see, you have to have a love that has room for failure because other people's love for you has to have room for failure. And Paul expects that. And that's why he says we're to forbear one another in love. And then having told us how to walk, In verse 2, Paul tells us our purpose in it in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The purpose of our walk is peace. Now, as we look around at the church today, what do we see? We see the church split up into many churches, each having their own name, separating themselves from each other. And between these churches, even churches with the same name, there is often jealousy and rivalry. You have to be patient with crying babies. If we look around at the church today, it's a sad spectacle that we see. Division all around. Reinhold Nieberg said, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. Now, that may be a little bit strong. But I think we would honestly have to say that we're not doing very well at fulfilling this verse. Let me make a couple of observations about unity from verse 3. Number one, unity takes effort. And that's why Paul uses the word here, be diligent. And that word really falls short of the Greek word because the Greek word has the idea of urgency an action. It's not just an attitude that he's talking about here. He's saying, make every effort. Do your utmost to preserve unity. Now, I think if Paul were here today and he looked around, he probably would not be too surprised by the division in the church because he saw division in the early church. There was a difference of viewpoint over the relationship of Jews and Gentiles. It warranted a, a council at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that Paul was a major part of. In his first letter to Corinth, Paul addressed the problem of division. He said the church was all divided up into little groups, and some were saying, I have Paul, and some were saying, I have Apollos, others were saying, I have Peter, and some were saying, I have Christ. It was divided up. You had the the makings of the very first church split, or maybe the makings of, of the very first denominations in the church of Corinth. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul said in Philippians 4, 2, I urge Odia and I urge Sintichi to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, we don't know who those people are. We know they were ladies. There were two ladies that had a problem in the church there. How'd you like to have a problem and have it recorded in Scripture forever? Tell Odia and Sintichi to get along. Uh, some have uh, translated their names Odious and Soon they had a problem, they weren't getting along, and so Paul had to address that as he wrote to the church of Philippi. Divergent viewpoints and personality differences were already causing friction in the New Testament church. Someone has said to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Satan loves to see Christians divided. He is actively seeking to cause division. And so Paul says, we need to actively seek to preserve unity. First thing is that unity takes effort. And the second thing I want to point out from verse 3 is that unity can't be created. Notice verse 3. It says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. You see, we cannot produce unity. We can just maintain unity. It's the Spirit of God who has already produced it. We just have to be careful that we don't destroy it. That's one of the problems I have with the ecumenical movement, which is a good movement in overall purpose. They want to come about and bring about unity. Uh, someone has, has described it as the church is full of ecumaniacs. Someone else has said the church is going through ecumenopause. Um uh, I'm not even sure what that means. But let me tell you what my problem is with the ecumenical movement. They are trying to produce unity. They're trying to produce unity by having an an organization. But see, the problem is the Spirit of God has already produced unity, and it's not an organization, it's an organism. It's the body of Christ. And the problem with the ecumenical movement is that they're trying to bring people together together some of whom are even devoid of the Spirit of God, into a united effort, and that can't work. What I have to do is maintain unity, the unity that God the Spirit has already produced by living inside each believer and causing that unity in the body of Christ. And the second problem I have with the ecumenical movement is that their, their means of unity is to really do away with truth. They say, well, our problem is that we believe things. If we don't believe anything, then we can have unity. So they throw out the Word of God. And, of course, that, that is an attempt to have unity, but it's a false humility or unity because you cannot produce it. You can only maintain it. It's produced by the Spirit of God. You say, well, how do you preserve the unity of the Spirit? Well, that's easy. It starts with you. It's like a poster I saw that says, how do we feed a hungry world? And down at the bottom it says, one person at a time. Unity starts with you. You see, when you are walking worthy of your calling, as he describes in verses 1 and 2, then you are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So you put me in a room with another Christian who's walking in all humility thinking of me as more important than him, who has this kind of meekness that's not demanding his own rights, who is demonstrating the long fuse of patience and who is putting up with my faults in love... I'm going to have a difficult time pushing that person away. I'm going to want to be around that person. And so these characteristics in our walk really help unity to be maintained. The thing that causes discord is pride, impatience, and selfishness. The worthy walk preserves unity. And then having said that, Paul moves on in verses 4 to 6 to reinforce this idea of unity. Notice, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word one appears seven times in those three verses. And it's clear that God is saying that He is one and that His design for us is oneness. In fact, if you look at those verses, the three different persons of the Godhead, each are described in a verse. Verse 4 is the Spirit. Verse 5 is the Lord Jesus. And verse 6 is God the Father. And the first thing he says is that there is one body. How many bodies are there? There's one. There's not a Presbyterian body and a Baptist body and a Methodist body and a Catholic body. There is one body. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus there is one body made up of all true believers in Jesus Christ and that's what Paul said earlier in Ephesians 3:15 he said there is one family in heaven and on earth you say you mean there are methodists in the body there are anglicans in the body there are charismatics in the body Catholics in the body? Yes. See, sometimes we like to define the body very narrow. And we like to celebrate our differences. But this verse tells me that we have a responsibility to eagerly work to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that includes the whole body of Christ. Second thing he says is there's one Spirit. How many Holy Spirits are there? There's one. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that your body individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that we collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so He indwells each one of us collectively, as we read in Ephesians 2.22, we together are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And that's really what makes us one. We're not just a group of people who adhere to a certain creed. We are a group of people who are individually indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's the one who makes us one. And that's why verse 3 says it is the unity of the Spirit. And that's why you can have fellowship with a Christian you've never met before. Because we have so much in common, the Spirit of God. Third thing, he says, is we have one hope of our calling. Now, these first three factors of unity are linked together because it's the one Spirit that forms the one body for its ultimate goal. And what is its ultimate goal? What is the hope that we all share? Well, it's expressed dozens of times in Scripture. It's the hope of the return of Jesus Christ and all that that will result in in the church and the world. That's our hope. It, it, it's expressed most briefly, I guess, in Colossians 1.27 when Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And John expressed it this way in 1 John 3 two. He said, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. There is one hope. And though Christians may disagree on when He's coming and some of the details of His coming, every true Christian shares the same hope, and that is the return of Jesus Christ and the fact that we will be like Him. Next thing he says is one hope. Lord, How many lords are there? There's one. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. And who is the Lord that they're making reference to? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2.17 that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We all have one Lord, and it's Jesus. He's the one way, the one mediator, the one head, and the one Lord. In Christianity Today, July 17th of last year, there was a report about a meeting of the new ecumenism. And at that meeting, Boston College's Peter Kreeft called for cooperation between traditional Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And his reason was, he said, quote, we all worship the same Lord. Well, I'm sorry, but that's false. Because there is only one Lord. And we do not all worship the same Lord. Muslims don't worship the Lord Jesus. And so this unity is based on the one Lord who is Jesus Christ. Everyone who bows the knee to Him and says He is Lord is united in the body of Christ. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians twelve three, that it's only by the Spirit of God that we can say, Jesus is Lord. And so he indwells us individually, collectively, and causes our cry to be, Jesus is Lord. One Lord. Next thing he says is one faith. Now, he may be referring here to saving faith. If so, he's saying that we all come into the body the same way, by faith alone. He described that faith earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 when he said it was a faith that was not of works lest any man should boast. It's a faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And so if he's talking here about that faith, he's saying that we all came into the body the same way by saving faith, faith alone. He may also be talking about faith in a different way the way he describes it in chapter 4 and verse 13 when he talks about the faith. And when it's used that way in Scripture, it's a reference to the contents of our belief. Jude used it that way in Jude 3. He said, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith there would be the body of truths that make up the Christian faith. The content of the revelation of God, which would be the Word of God. I was always bothered by one of, one of our radio, Christian radio stations used to advertise itself by saying uh, uh, that it was for... All faiths. Well, I have a problem with that. Because this verse tells me there is one faith. There is one faith by which we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is simple, childlike, humble faith. And there is one faith upon which it is based, which is the content of the Word of God, which describes for us that Lord that we bow before. There is one faith. And then he tells us there is one baptism. Baptism. Now, some say this is a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that could be because there is one baptism of the Spirit that every Christian enters into at salvation. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. If you are a Christian, you have been baptized with the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. And so we have one spiritual baptism. However, I think he's probably talking here about water baptism. And the reason I say that is because if he were talking about spirit baptism, I think he would have associated this baptism with the spirit that he mentioned in verse 4. This verse, he's talking about the Lord, Jesus. And so he's talking about a baptism that's related to the Lord Jesus, and that would seemingly, in my mind, be water baptism. You say, well, how can there be unity in baptism? I mean... uh, The the Baptists say the one baptism is immersion. The Presbyterians say you're all wet. It's sprinkling. Some people baptize infants. Other people say it's only consenting adults. Baptism seems to be a controversial issue. How can he say there's one baptism, and how can he relate it to our unity? I think the reason is that despite all of those differences, there's one thing that everyone agrees on, and that is that you are not baptized into the name of a local church. You are not baptized in the name of a prominent evangelist. You are not baptized in the name of your pastor. You are baptized in one name only, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul used that same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When he addressed the church at Corinth that was all divided, he spoke to those who were saying, I of Paul, and he asked this question in chapter 13, were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. You were baptized in the name of Christ. And so it's our unifying point. Those who by one Lord are in one faith testify to that in one baptism. Which brings us to his final point in verse 6. One God and Father. How many gods are there? There's one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says the Lord our God is one God. And that one God is not just our God. He is the one we call Father. And this verse tells us He is over all sovereign. He is through all The sustainer, and he is in you all. That's his personal presence in our lives. And so everything in defining the Christian life is one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And God desires that that oneness would be evident in the church. How does it start? With me and with you, when we walk worthy of our calling? in Jesus Christ, in humility, in meekness, in patience, and forbearing love.